All right, very good. You can have your Bibles handy as we step into a topical message today uh, surrounding our holiday that, uh, that we celebrate today, December 25th, Christmas. Today is Christmas Day, the day of the year where the church has traditionally chosen to remember the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the historic reason for recognizing Jesus' birth is well summed up in Zacharias's joyful exclamations in Luke chapter 1. In verses 78 and 79, second half of 78, he says, Through the tender mercies of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, I jumped very much into the context of this praise, but what we find here is Zacharias called Jesus the day spring from on high, and that he was sent to give light to them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death unto this end, that he would guide our feet into the way of peace. That he would come to a people who sat in darkness. That he would come to a people who sat in the shadow of death. And that through him coming, he would guide their feet into something different, into peace. Now, what Zacharias is doing here is he is putting together several messianic prophecies. And he's kind of jamming them together into a singular proclamation. And I'd like us to understand this proclamation because it is going to form the foundation of our application this morning. And so I'm going to work in reverse order of the things that Zechariah is saying here. And we'll, we'll look at the various prophecies that he kind of jammed together to try to understand a little bit of where he's coming from and what these prophecies are telling us in order that we can then apply this morning. So we begin here then with a, a prophecy that Zechariah references in Isaiah 9. And in Isaiah 9, verse 2, the Bible says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's that immediate idea of those who have walked in darkness. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. There it is again. Upon them hath the light shined. Skipping to verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Isaiah saw a time, and he saw this time when the people walked in darkness and the shadow of death. And he saw in that time, now the prophet is looking toward a time. He does not know when that time is. When we look at, when we think through the idea of prophecy and the nature of the prophetic, we recognize uh, that the, pro- the prophets didn't exactly know what they were sharing. As we think through the idea that they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of God which was in them did signify when it prophesied of the various things of Christ. And so we recognize that the prophets only had a a glimpse of this. But what Isaiah is seeing here is he is seeing a people and he's seeing a people who are walking in darkness in the shadow of death. And then he sees a child born, born of the line of David and destined unto David's throne. And this child would establish judgment and justice as the mighty God and the everlasting father reigning forever upon the throne Of David. Now, as Zechariah 
directly connects the birth of Jesus with the fulfillment of this prophecy, we recognize that it's only the beginning of that fulfillment. The days where the people walked in darkness and saw a great light, the people that walked in the shadow of death, and this child who was born. We understand that to this point in history, he has not yet established that throne and established that justice. And this is what we call in prophecy dual, or excuse me, um, not dual fulfillment, but, but this is where we see that, that a prophecy, a singular prophecy, can actually be partially fulfilled at one time, and the rest of that singular prophecy might be fulfilled at a much later date. And we see such a time period here where the promise of the child who would come, and then it would be, to this point, 2,000 years later, and yet that government is not yet established. However, the fact that the child came the fact that the, the near fulfillment of that prophecy happened gives us absolute confidence that the second half of it is coming as well. And this is why God gives prophecies in that way. Why he gave prophecies with a short term and a farther fulfillment. So that the short term fulfillment or the partial near fulfillment could give the rest of the people, as they're waiting for the rest of that, 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 that fulfillment, could give them assurances and confidence that the rest is surely going to come. So the focus of Isaiah is upon the child who would rule over his people, beginning with the promise that he would draw those out of darkness and into light. And Zechariah thus called this child who would come the day spring from on high. A day spring... Well, I mentioned this uh, a couple of weeks ago as it related to our singing. A day spring is another name for what we call a sunrise, the beginning of the day. And this term day spring for Messiah is rooted in the final prophecy and the promise of God through the prophet Malachi. Just before the end of what we call the Old Testament, just before uh, the beginning of that 450 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And in that Malachi prophecy, we read this in Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as and he, ye shall go, go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice the promise in verse two. Unto you that fear my name shall the Son, S U N, of righteousness arise with healing. In his wings. In the midst of a generation ripe for judgment, the Bible says that a son would rise, that there would be a day spring, that the darkness would give way to dawn, that the S U N of righteousness would arise. Not like S O N, like the son of a father, but S U N, like that ball of gas which lights and warms the earth. So in Malachi, we see a promise. And the promise is that there would be a divine sunrise, which would break the darkness of the generation into which he came, and he would shine the light and then lead them into that light. 
And he would bring in his wings, as Malachi chapter 4, verse 2 says, healing. Now, again, we're not mixing our metaphors here. The idea of wings is actually the concept of the rays of the sun. So, you know, we don't really necessarily see this uh, uh, when we look at the sun, unless there's clouds there and you can kind of see the rays, uh, which are coincidentally called God rays, right, through the clouds. However, when a child paints a picture of a sun, right, they've got the little round thing, and then they've got all, the, all, all of the, the little lines that come out of that sun, and those are the rays of the sun. Well, in this idea here, those are the wings, right? Those are the wings of the sun of righteousness, that as the sun rises, his wings or the rays of that sun would shine out into the world, and there would be healing so that everyone whom, who is touched by the, the warmth of this son of righteousness's light would be healed. So that the reason why Jesus' birth is so important, not only his atoning work and resurrection, but his birth is so important, is because his birth was the divine sunrise. His birth was when the day spring from on high came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we memorialize his birth. Because that is when the light broke through. That is when it was given. His birth initiated this great sunrise of righteousness, the glorious warmth and healing of grace under which we live and under which we breathe. It began on the day when that child was born and that son was given. And eventually the government will be upon his shoulders. But we commemorate the day when that sunrise broke through in the dawn. There's no question that this child who was born came promising, however, the healing of God. Now, two chapters before Isaiah's prophecy of the child who would be born, we already read that in Isaiah chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Two chapters before that, there's another very interesting account in Isaiah. Isaiah is interacting with King Ahaz. He's also known in the scriptures as King Jehoahaz. Ahaz was the grandson of the great King Uzziah, a godly king. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, the chapter before this, and you'll find that, that, that things aren't necessarily uh, um, uh, historically jam-packed together in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees that vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Now we see his grandson, Jehoahaz, or Ahaz, on the throne, and Isaiah is interacting with him. Ahaz would also be the father of the great king Hezekiah, to give you a picture of who this man Ahaz is. So, he's the grandson of Uzziah, he's the father of Hezekiah. You say, wow, this has got to be a really, really good man. He's not a good man. He's one of the wicked kings, one of the, 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 the wicked kings in Judah. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he followed after the wicked kings of Israel and not after the kings of Judah. And in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah is giving promises of deliverance to Ahaz against the king of Syria. The king of Syria uh, is, is coming and, and Isaiah is promising Ahaz deliverance. That's a good thing. You'd think Ahaz would be all on board with that. And as a further assurance by God of God's promise to deliver Ahaz, he offered through Isaiah a sign. So we read in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. 
Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, we aren't going to dig deeply into this account today. It's worthy of a lot more time, and at some point we'll give it that. It's not our purpose today, however. But while it might very well have been tempting God to refuse to believe God's promises at his word and instead demand a sign to say, well, Isaiah comes and he gives this great promise. And if if Ahaz had said, you know what, I don't believe God's promise. I need a sign. That may have been tempting God. As a matter of fact, that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees did in the New Testament, did they not? When they asked Jesus for a sign in Matthew chapter 16, and in verse 4, Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Why? Because Jesus had already given many signs and wonders. Jesus had already come and done everything he needed to do. And they're saying, what is the sign that you're from God? Because they were attempting to not believe him. So yes, that wicked and adulterous generation seeketh a sign. But in this case, Ahaz did not ask for a sign. God is offering a sign. And this is a different situation here. God is actually telling Ahaz to seek unto a sign. But in what can only be described as a tremendous, uh, in what can only be described as the tremendous grace of God, he allowed Ahaz not only to have a sign, but literally to choose what the sign would be. He says, ask anything in the depth or the height above. You ask anything of me. You ask for a sign and I will give you that sign to, to show you that my deliverance of your kingdom from Syria is assured. But in a fit of tremendous false humility, Ahaz actually rejects the sign. He rejects asking for the sign. This would actually be akin to, as I just said, rejecting the sign itself. He doesn't want the sign. He's not interested in the sign. Stating, again, in false humility, he says, no, 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 no. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't tempt the Lord. It's not tempting the Lord to do what he told you. He said, ask for a sign, ask for a sign. And this greatly frustrated the prophet. It greatly frustrated the Lord, who would then use the conceit of Ahaz to make a, pro, uh, to make a prophetic promise that would be to the whole house of David. And we know that there was a broadening of the promise here in the next verses because of the language that's used. Notice, as we have spoken before, we mentioned it a few weeks ago on our Sunday morning, that as Isaiah speaks to Ahaz, he uses the first person or the second person singular pronoun, thee. Moreover, the Lord spake again to Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. So he's saying to Ahaz individually, that's what the these, the thys, and the thous in the King James Bible mean, right? A second person singular pronoun, thee, ask thee a sign. And then when Ahaz rejects this sign, when he rejects the asking of a sign, notice what happens then in verses 13 and 14. And he said, hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. 
Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So notice the broadening here. We go from the the pronoun, which is second person singular in our King James Bibles, to the you, ye, your pronoun, which is second person plural. And we see this broadening out here from speaking to Ahaz directly to, well, then the Lord will show the entire house of David a sign. Here's the sign that is coming from the house of David and to the house of David. And the sign would be that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And that this son's name, as we've sung many times over the last several weeks, would be Emmanuel. Which, of course, Matthew tells us, being interpreted, is God with us. And so we have this promise that would come in Isaiah chapter 9, that a child would be born and his name would be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Two chapters earlier, as Isaiah is speaking with Ahaz, he said there's a sign coming that a virgin will conceive and will bear a son, and that son will be called God with us. And so we find here this culmination of prophecy, which brings us to the reality that the one who came is, in fact, God in flesh. So that John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now John introduces his book by speaking of this one who is called the Word. This is that famous term, uh, perhaps a bit overused in Christian circles today, logos. It is a word that literally means the spoken word, and it connects the identity of this one in John chapter 1 to the second person of the Godhead. So that when we read in Genesis chapter 1, as we uh, studied, well, it's been a little while now since we were in Genesis chapter 1, but when we were in Genesis chapter 1, we find that in, in each day, the Bible says, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be light. And he would continue to say. And each time he said, that is the word. That is the word that we're speaking of here in John chapter 1. The word was going forth and thus creating all that is. So that this very same word that created the worlds is the one who John is introducing to us. And then we find something startling and fascinating if we continue to read in John chapter 1 in verse 14. Because in verse 14, we've been introduced to this one who is the Word, who is with God, and who was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And it goes on to say that all things were created by Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. And then verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word, the Word which formed the world, the word which is both creator and sustainer was made flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And as we read in the spirit-filled praise of Zacharias in Luke 1, the Bible says that this one who was the word made flesh, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the day spring from on high, who came with healing in his wings, it's all the same person. It's all this child. This child who would be born of a virgin. A virgin would conceive and bring forth a child. And his name would be called God with us. This child who would be born and the government would be on his shoulders. And he would have this name that is the mighty God. And he would be the day spring from on high. The son of righteousness who would break forth with healing in his wings. 
And he came to do what? You remember what Zechariah said? He came to those who were in darkness and in the shadow of death, and he came to guide our feet into the way of peace. God was made flesh to save us from our sins. No doubt about that. God was made flesh. He was born. Uh, um, we, it was even the preparation this morning. Born to die. Right? Born to die upon Calvary. Yes, born to die. Not just born to die. He would die. He would be buried. He would raise again the third day. He would ascend into heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father. He's returning for his own. All of that is true. We'll get to that in, I don't know when Resurrection Sunday is this year, March or April. We'll get there. But you know what else he came to do? He came to guide us into a way. He came to set an example for us to follow. So that when we came to the cross, when we received that salvation by grace through faith, when the Holy Spirit of God indwelled us, all made possible by his finished work on the cross, then we could open this book and we could read of his life and his ministry and we could read of the instructions of his apostles and we would be guided into the way of peace. There would be healing in those wings that as the rays of that sun hit us, the sun of righteousness hit us, it would not just save us from our sins, but it would provide for us a new and a living way. And with the remaining time I have today, I'd like us to consider this way of peace. I'd like us to consider what it looks like, this way of peace into which Jesus guides us. It's a way he walked, and it's the way he asks us to follow. So that as we remember Jesus' birth on this day every year, I hope we don't just remember it as a day where a child was born, but a day where a sun rose and lightened a path for us to walk. So that as we remember this day, it's the remembrance of a person who we follow every day, whose footsteps are before us every day. So that tomorrow, which is the farthest day from Christmas possible, linearly, we are still following the footsteps that were enlightened beginning on the day when that child was born, when that son was given, until the day that the government will rest upon his shoulders. So consider with me three paths that Jesus walked that he asks us to follow. First, Jesus walked in humility, Christian. Jesus walked in humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice the example who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. When the day spring from on high dawned in Bethlehem so many years ago, he came for a purpose. Yes, he came to die. But this one who was in the form of God and had every right to be declared equal with God, but this Emmanuel, this God with us, took upon himself no reputation, made himself of no reputation, excuse me, took upon himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. And as we read what Jesus did for us, it actually harkens us back to what Paul had already called us to in verses 3 and 4. The fact that Jesus humbled himself, the fact that Jesus walked in humility, the fact that Jesus took upon him the form of a servant, the fact that he did this for us, what does it call us unto? What does Jesus being born in that manger, what does his humility from that day forward until the very day of his death, what does that call us unto? It calls us unto this way of peace. He came to guide our feet into the way of peace, right? This is the way. This way passes through the virtue of humility, Christian. On this Christmas, we are celebrating the divine sunrise whose rays have lightened upon us the glorious grace and knowledge of the living God. And this grace and knowledge call us to set ourselves aside. To live in lowliness of mind. To esteem other better than yourself. To look upon the things of others rather than your own things. Now, historically, Christmas has kind of meant, been meant to embody that, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, the giving of gifts, charity in this time. Our society is long past those days now. It's more like receiving of gifts and keeping for ourselves and thinking of ourselves and getting into debt so that we can be saddled with it for the next several months and all of those things. That's more like what, what Christmas is for society today. But... The reason why Christmas has historically been this time of giving is because Christmas is the day that a child was born to guide our feet into the way of peace. And as he guided us into that way of peace, that way of peace passed through humility. If you truly want to honor the coming of he who is called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace... Let us follow his example of humility. How are you doing today, Christian? How are you doing with these principles of humility that Jesus exemplified for us? How are you doing it walking in the way that he forged? Lowliness of mind. Esteeming other better than yourself. Is that what your last week has looked like? Is that what your interaction with your spouse looks like, sounds like? Children, is that what your interaction with your parents looks like, sounds like? Parents, is that what your interaction with your children looks like, sounds like? Employer, is that what your interaction with your employee looks like? Employee, is that what your interaction with your employer looks like? Church member, is that what our interactions one with another look like? Let each esteem other better than himself. 
Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Why? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He guided our feet, our path, to the way of peace. That's the way. First, the way of humility. Second, Jesus walked in love. I'm not going to belabor this point because we have a whole Sunday series that I've been preaching on the topic of loving one another. And I'm right in the middle of kind of a mini-series going through explicitly what does it look like to love one another. We'll be addressing that again, um, um, obviously not tonight, um, but in the weeks that are to come. But let us remind ourselves of that great exhortation. For those of you that aren't following along in our evening service, the great exhortation in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, here it is. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Have you noticed that God is not a do as I say, not as I do kind of a God? God is not the kind of God that sets one standard for himself and another standard for his creation. God is the kind of God who sent his son Jesus Christ to be God in flesh, to manifest the Father to us in a form that we can receive so that we might be like him. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Love not just because Christ loved but love as Christ loved. Not just because Christ loved, as Christ loved. And when, all those years ago, unto us a child was born, unto us a son was given, he was given that we might learn to love as he loved. To do good to all men, as we have been learning in our Sunday night series, and especially to them that are of the household of faith. To be generous, to serve, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to forgive as he forgave, to be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And as we celebrate Christmas on this day, we celebrate the one who guides our feet into the way of peace. The way of peace passes through the checkpoint of humility. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. The way of peace passes through the checkpoint of love, Christian. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. By the way, if you say, Pastor, is this saying you can lose your, you, you lose your salvation if you don't love as Jesus loved? Well, no, that's not what this means. Go to the First John series. Uh, it'll clear all that up for you. That's beyond the scope of our time today. Herein is love, though. 
Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Here in his love, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In that he did not just show us love, he exemplified love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, Jesus said in John 15, if you do whatsoever I command you. And that actually leads us into our third point. Jesus walked in humility. Jesus walked in love. Third and finally this morning, Jesus walked in obedience, Christian. We read already in Philippians 2 that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's an interesting thing, is it not? To think of the idea of the God of all flesh, the one who created the worlds in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The one who thought it not robbery to be equal as God. And yet this one became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. His humility, the path of humility and the path of love led him to a point of obedience. Is he going to fulfill the will of the Father or isn't he? We might even see a closer connection to obedience and love, however, in John 15. Jesus said in verses 9 and 10, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Okay, so there's the concept of love, right? We walk through the path of obedience in this way of peace. And then we come to this idea of love. Love one another as Christ has loved us. And Jesus says, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. And what does that look like? If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Christian, the way of peace into which that child was born to guide us is a way of obedience. When we ask about what Jesus did with his life, we cannot have a better answer than that Jesus' life was a life of obedience to the Father. The Father loved him, and he kept the Father's commandments. He did what the Father asked him to do. The Father loved him, he kept the Father's commandments. Jesus loved us, and he has guided our feet into the way of obedience. Jesus does not ask us to obey in the manner of men, a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do sort of obedience. That's not what Jesus has asked of us. He's never asked that of us. He is not the kind of man who gave an authoritative command for the little people, which he would never condescend to do himself. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Notice what Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. He humbled himself, became obedient unto the cross, learned obedience, so that he could 
then show us that he has forged a path not just for us to be saved, but a path for us to follow. God the Father loved him, so he obeyed the Father. That obedience brought to him a path of suffering. He humbled himself unto that suffering in love. He obeyed. Unto this end, that when I walk out of this church on this Christmas morning, I have no excuse if I have accepted the love of Christ. I have no excuse not to obey him. See, because Jesus has already forged the way. He showed me it's possible. He showed me how to do it. He's commanded me to do it. And by the way, he also enables me through his spirit to do it. So that if I'm not in obedience, it's not because I can't be. It's because I won't be. It's because there's a deficiency as it relates to my relationship with my Savior. It's because I'm not walking the path that Jesus forged. And that's why he came, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Keep Christ's commandments. Now, the world says that'll make you miserable. Keep Christ's commandments. What am I losing when I keep Christ's commandments? But the Bible says our Savior is leading us into the way of peace. Interesting, isn't it? We talked a little bit this morning in our Sunday school hour about the paradoxes of Christianity. One of the paradoxes we talked about this morning is the idea that when I yield, I win with, with, in, in the spiritual world. In, in most of the world around us, when I yield, when I tap out, when I give in, that's when I have lost. But when it comes to the spiritual, when the, when the Spirit of God is banging on my heart, saying, let me in, submit to me, give yourself to me, obey me, and everything within me says, no, I don't want to give up, I don't want to give in, I want to be the God of my own life, I want to stay on my own throne, I want to do things my way, I want to do things in the way that feels good to me. And yet when I do yield, when I do give in, when I learn obedience, that's when there is glory. That's when there is reward. That's when there is victory. That's when I win. When I yield, I win. Doesn't make sense to the world. Doesn't have to make sense to the world. Doesn't make sense in the modern idea of Christmas. Doesn't matter what the modern idea of Christmas is. We have come to remember the birth of a child. We've come to remember why he came. We came to remember when that divine sunrise broke the horizon of the darkness of this world and began to spread the healing of his wings into our hearts. And he came for a reason. He came to save us from our sins, but unto a purpose. And that purpose was to guide our feet into the way of peace. Are you walking that path today, Christian? Are you walking the path of humility? Are you walking the path of love are you walking the path of obedience? On Christmas Day, we find ourselves with an opportunity to remember not only our redemption, that's actually more suited, as we've said, to the time of the resurrection, but all the more so to remember that day spring from on high. 
the Son of Righteousness, which arose with healing in his wings to comfort those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death to lead our feet into the way of peace. And the natural question to ask then is this. Are you walking in the way of peace unto which Jesus led us? Of course, naturally, first and foremost, have you accepted the Savior who leads us into that way of peace? Have you come to the place in your life where you have recognized that you are a sinner, that your sin has separated you from a holy God, that a holy God cannot have a personal relationship with a sinful person, and thus you are separated, that you cannot earn your way, work your way, deserve your way back into that God. You have already dug yourself into a pit out of which you cannot dig. You cannot get yourself. You cannot get yourself out of that pit. You are already there. You've already done the crime. You've already done the things wrong. You already deserve to be punished. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Are you condemned today? Or have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can say with all confidence, I am not condemned, not because of what you have done, not because of what you have earned, not because of what you have purchased, not because of what you deserve or don't deserve, but because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And he didn't just stay on that cross, did he? He died on that cross, but the Bible says he was buried. And three days later, he rose again in victory over the, ga- over the grave, validating to all of history, that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, and that he will do what he says he will do, which is he's coming again for his own. And if you've never done that, would you make today the day, what better day than Christmas, to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? Now, most of those unto whom I'm talking today are believers. Church is for believers. You're here on Christmas as a believer. How are you doing, Christian? For we who are in Christ, we view this day not just as a holiday, not just as a day off, not just as an opportunity to get or even to give, but as a true memorial of our Savior. Yes, we celebrate his birth. Yes, we call him our Lord and Savior. But are you following him? He came and he forged for us a path to lead our feet into the way of peace. Are you walking in that way today? When God was made flesh, he did so so that we might behold his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father and then follow in his footsteps. And on this Christmas, may we be determined to follow him into humility, into love, and into obedience. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.